Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we are going back in time. Twice. Uh, we're going to talk about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, we're not even going to talk about our week because we have just finished recording last week's episode. Nothing has happened. You all know the drill. We're just going to talk about this movie, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick's sci-fi Masterpiece. Yes, masterpiece. <laughs> masterpiece. Uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. In context of the AFI thrills list. So, uh, and then we're going to go ahead and let you listen to our original discussion about this uh, this movie from several years ago now. And I hope you enjoy it. I think it was a really good episode, so I'm excited for you to hear it. But before we get into it, is it thrilling? Uh, I think it's thrilling, but then I've enjoyed this. Explain too. yourself. I think that it's we've we've covered a lot of different kinds of thrills. Yes, we covered suspense movies, uh huh, and action movies. We just did Dirty Harry. We did. We covered the kind of thrills that you get from really good acting. Sure, like Twelve Angry Men, for instance, or in some ways, really good writing. One of the things that worked really well for me in the picture of Dorian Gray was how well written that film was. So punchy. Uh, that dude was such a dick. <laughs> Those one-liners. So snappy. Yes, absolutely. So I think this is a different kind. This is an intellectual thrill. Okay. Okay. I don't hate that reasoning. Right. Because the end of the film is really mind-bending. Because I would argue uh-huh. on a minute-by-minute basis, my heart rate's only going up like five minutes of the two hour and twenty nine minute runtime. So overall, that doesn't feel very thrilling to me. Mm. Um, but I do understand what you are saying. Also, there's a bit of a thrill to see sort of how Uh, Kubrick's brain works because I'm pretty yeah. sure that's basically what we're watching on here. There's a. It was voted as one of as it's always consistently been on the top ten list for the greatest film ever made. Yeah, it's it lives up there. Um, and it's because you're taken on this real amazing trip. And this is, I believe, made 1968. So you're watching something that starts with the literal dawn of humanity yeah. and goes into the future of humanity. In yes. that, by the end of the film, you're watching the evolution of a new species. Sure. Of human being. Um, not human being, because it's a new species. But it's, at the same time, it starts, well, at the beginning, you're not seeing a human being either. Correct. So, in the middle, you get the human being. <laughs> yes. But it's about, it's like about one of the biggest topics that you can probably address as a subject for a film. And there hasn't been anybody else who's attempted something on this scale, really. Uh, there's been other really intelligent science fiction movies. Uh, the Martians considered one. Interstellar. Arrival is a really smart Arrival science fiction movie. Arrival is a great science fiction Gattaca movie. Gattaca is a really great science fiction yep, movie. Yep, yep. Um, and then there are some time travel ones, Primer right. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And this one is just a film where someone gave a person with real vision a great deal of money. <laughs> And a, a lot of technical support full of cash. to create this very seamless world. That's what I really like about this movie. I don't see the studio edges with this one. Yeah, 
the production design is pretty spectacular. There are some images in there that are iconic outside of the, right. you know, the psychedelic right situation at the end. And so the running on the circle and the right. yeah that whole this film really does. And there was it, there were years spent on the production of this film. It was one of the few science fiction films where the author was taken into consideration and he's sitting there with the director working right. on this film. Yes, because Arthur C. Clarke wrote the right. source material. I use quotes, but that is it is they say it is based on a book. So Right. And that. he was also but he was like there working with Kubrick on it. And um Kubrick was there working with the special effects guys, Doug Trumbull and this group of technicians. And so it's one of the rare movies where these special effects are directed by the film's director, which is probably why yes, they are Yes, because he, had, he was like, what's in my head right. needs to be on the screen, and no one else could do that. Right. Natasha quite, Bedingfield will tell you. Right. No one else can speak the words on your lips. Like that's Quite <laughs> often you have scenes where, like, once the principal production is finished, Either the, the director or the second unit director will supervise parts of the finished product, but they're sort of put in and the producers insist on hiring. No, he put together a hand-picked crew of experts and he worked, showed up there directing the footage, the special effects footage, as if he was directing actors. And so that led to this, some people say it feels very cold and technological, but I think that it really is about humanity trying to become something in the end becoming something more than what it has been before so it's like in that respect yeah it is thrilling i can understand if not everyone feels that way but i would also argue there is a a a sense of thrill to how especially in comparison to the next kubrick villain that i think we're going to see which is from clockwork orange right how chill the villain is. <laughs> yes. There's no mania. There's no malice. There's no... It's just... Right. I don't think I can do that, Dave. <laughs> Which is not in and of itself a sense that would strike fear, but it right. really does. It does, because you're, and, and at the same time, a villain whose death in this film, as he's slowly being unplugged and going back into his childhood memories... You feel sympathy for him, like, oh, oh, wait, he just, he's not, what's lacking from him is the same kind of humanity that we followed from the ape creature at the beginning of the film, and then we follow into this almost messianic star child at the end of the film. Right. In between, what this character, what Hal's issue is that he's not human, and he can't reason out that decision and that decision process, protect the mission, but at the same time, Right, but he comes with the same thing that every AI comes to, which is the only way I can save humanity is to just, to just wipe it out it because out. it's gonna fuck itself up. Right. Thanks. And I, I'm not <laughs> sure if this was the first time that AI, came, AI comes to that decision in a film, but it might be. This might be where. It's, but it's been an it's been a thing in sci-fi. In science and, fiction. Oh, I mean, right. obviously Arthur C. Clarke is what who came up with it, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, that's been right. Asimov. And that, I mean, that's kind of what's interesting is just the notion that um, we we were just uh, reviewing not too long ago the Terminator. Yes. And my complaint was, and it was a complaint that was married from John Brosnan, who wrote Future Tense, which is a big seminal book on science fiction films, is that filmmakers who work in sci-fi treat it like a junkyard where you take a bit of this, yeah. you take a piece of this, and you stick it all together and make your own thing. 
whereas um, Kubrick had enough respect to where he's going, Clark's ideas are so big that I want him with me right. to try but to But also, I'm, not, I'm only going to use his ideas, which uh, right. that does happen. I think um, that happens especially, I think, filmically mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Phil K. Dick's works. Right. They are pretty standalone when they are put on film. That right. that it is his world. It is his, uh, and I think most adaptations, like clear adaptations, mm-hmm. are like that. It's the not from a general I, or it's not from an IP right. uh, sci-fi right. that where you have more. And I have to agree to that because when you're looking at like during the sixties and seventies, there was uh, the films that were made that were really popular of either Jules Verne's works or H.G. Wells. And they, those are both such recognizable authors that you can see what their thing is. Right. But other than that, no, people just sort of like stripped and, and even with Wells to a certain extent, they, they would modernize the stories, they would strip them and, and just add these parts together like you were adding Lego bricks. Which is fine if you cite. Right. Cite your sources and pay for them. But, yeah, and that happened. But if you just right. take, yeah, and, uh, 10% of right. something, you just figure, I don't have to pay for it. No, you might only have to pay 10% of it, but you've got to pay something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, this I, I really, I'm a huge fan of I this I know film. you're a big fan of this movie. I don't, it's fine. Well, it's also really beautiful. It's a beautiful film to look at. And it... Yeah, it, like not just the scope, but the cinematography, the production design, as you mentioned, the art direction, it's amazing. Because I could actually believe that this world existed or that's the world that was supposed to exist right. in terms of space exploration. Not what happened, sadly, but what should have happened, I guess. Right. Okay, so that is 2001. Enjoy our episode from four years ago right. on this uh, movie. Next week, we are watching 1988's Die Hard. Now for something completely one, different. The original one. Right. Yeah, we're all over the place this week, because then we're going to 1946. We're all over the place. So, uh, until then, you know, take care of yourselves. We uh, we do our whole spiel at the end of this, so we don't have to do it now. So, <laughs> enjoy the episode. And welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are going to talk about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. I almost said oddity. It's not what it says. Not what it is. Before we get to that, I've had a bit of a day. It involved working for a few hours, sleeping for a few hours, showering, an earthquake, some cereal, and now we're ready to podcast. Does that about sum it up? Yep. Yep. How was your day? <laughs> um, well, it was just much more exciting about half an hour ago. I was sitting in my bed, and the entire house moved to the left. Uh, yeah, that seems right. That's exactly what happened. We had a 3.6 uh, magnitude earthquake centered approximately uh, 
600 feet beneath our home. That's what it felt like. It was very close. The epicenter was in Oakland, and I hazard to guess it was within a mile radius of here. It was very quick. Before I knew what was happening, it was done. The cats did not enjoy it, so they are extra needy this evening. Uh, you may hear them in the background occasionally. Yeah, I don't want to show them Crying out for attention. Because I feel bad. Because they don't know what that was. I was pouring milk on cereal, because that's the dinner of champions, and it didn't even pause my milk flow. So, we're all good. Mm-mm. We're native Californians. Mm, yep. Both this happens all the time. Not that often. And you get used to it. I didn't feel one until I was living with you. Oh, it, I have that effect. Yes, well. So, at our house on Berkeley in 2005, maybe, that was the first time I'd ever felt an earthquake. So, 25 years, nothing. Then, earthquake. I was here in this house during the Lone Prairie quake. Oh, yeah. I lived in Clear Lake then. We did not feel it. Right. We felt it big time here. I was working downtown, and I remember in the Holmes Book Company, I remember my boss at Holmes when, because usually an earthquake is just a sharp jolt. Yeah. Like it was today. That one... Carried on for a Yeah, no, it was a different type and of it, earthquake. People will tell you it's under 30 seconds, but it doesn't feel that way when it's happening. No. At one point, it was long enough to where my boss and I were standing in opposite doorways. Turns out you don't store. do that. Right, it turns out we don't <laughs> do that. Especially as we had swinging doors, they would have... Oh, jeez. But, um, and he looks at me and goes, geez, do you think this is the big one? I'm thinking, this is not what I want, the conversation I want to have while it's going I mean, on. turns out, yeah, kind of. It but was, it's, I mean, not the big mm, one that's going to break California off right. into the sea, but it was not a small one. It was one. a big one. There was a lot of casualties and a lot of... Broken freeways and bridges. Right. Freeways and bridges. Which is my big fear. That's why, I, that's what I don't, I don't want to be driving during an earthquake. Because I remember those images and they were terrifying The, the image of the car... Going from the top, top deck to the bottom, bottom deck, deck of the Golden Gate the, Bridge. Uh, no, no, Bay the Bay Bridge. Bridge. That was startling. I'm grateful that they're rebuilding the Bay Bridge to be one layer. Right. On one hand, no, we're not going into it. We're not going into my deep fears of bridges and cars and water. We're right. not doing it today. That's not what this movie's about. This movie's about space. <laughs> this is... Consciousness. Uh, Altered consciousness, monkeys, is about all kinds of weird things. Well, there's rodents. um, A number of years ago, Roger Ebert published a list that was compiled by over 100 film critics from around the world. And what they felt were the best films of all time. And you've now seen, I think, about half of that list. I'm doing it. You know, number one was Citizen Kane, which I felt it should be. But um, and then this is number two. Somewhere in the well, The Godfather. Oh, there was okay. a couple of others that fought for two or three. This is like the constant mm. war between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, right. the greatest band of well, all time. Well, there's also what was neat about this list is that Orson Welles shows up three times in it. He shows all up before for, he was twenty. Well, no, well, he shows up, all before he was thirty. Probably. Citizen Kane. He shows up for the Magnificent Ambersons, which okay. also revolutionized the way that movies were made. Yeah. And uh, for a film that he appeared in, but he didn't direct, which was uh, The Third Man. The Third Man, I was going to say. Which is a great movie. Some zither music. And this movie I is... get a zither. Right. <laughs> I get a zither. I, we, oh, I should learn how to play it. We should do The Third Man, and then right. I should play the zither part. I don't think that zither's playable, but we'll see. <laughs> we had a friend. We have a friend who's actually learned the zither. Zither. Who that? 
uh, Alan. Oh, I was going to say, was it Alan? Because he, <laughs> the theme for the third man got stuck in his head. That's there. awesome. Hi, Alan. I think you're listening. Probably yes. while painting. Your painting is going to be better than this podcast. Oh. <laughs> I put money on it. It's no denigration of the podcast. It's just he's a very good painter. Yes, it's true. He painted a very cool painting of Mr. T recently. Yes, and he painted a great painting of Gojira. <gasps> That's right. Yeah, he's a very good painter. Someday I'm going to... He does. He likes oil paints, and he does wet-on-wet wet oil paint, and you know who else does that? Bob Ross. So I'm going to go to his house and have a Bob Ross session with him. I've already decided. What are you going to paint? Alan, it's happening. Happy moments. I don't know. I will find a Bob Ross episode that I like, and we will watch it. I think we should try the William Alexander episode. Mm-mm, he's different. Not he's as scary. zen. No. I he's like growling zen. and slapping paint on the canvas all the time. It's too much. It's too anxious. Anxiety producing. I don't like it. I want the calm of a poofy headed Bob Ross okay. and his pet squirrel, please. Pet squirrel? He had a pet squirrel. I don't remember this. He had a pet squirrel. Oh, he didn't bring it on the air, did he? Yes, he did. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> I can't remember its name. It had a cool name, too, and I can't remember it. Anyway, maybe I'll come in at the end later. <laughs> squirrel name. Anyways, we're talking. I I slept for four hours this afternoon, and I didn't think I was going to have energy for the podcast, but it turns out I found all this the is, energy. Yes. I found it. Got a second wind. I think this is like a sixth wind. I'm never going to sleep tonight. It's going to be great. Tomorrow's going to be excellent. All right. We watched 2001, 2001, A Space Odyssey, a movie that was made in 1968, by Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. While we watched it, I was altered by legal substances. That's what I will say. I was mildly I altered by legal substances because I thought, well, this is an experience that one should have altered on legal substances. And so I did. Uh, I was not impaired, just altered and asking weird questions. Uh, so, okay, before we get to the plot, you want to mention something. Familiarize people with who Stanley Kubrick was. Okay. And he was a man who started out as a photographer. He was actually getting his photographs published when he was still in high school. That's In major magazines. Um, and you can see his sensibility, the photographer's sensibility, when you're watching this film. Yes, absolutely. And that's something it's that, almost like a series of still images. Right, and there are. In the very beginning, he sets his scenes by taking very... A painterly compositions. Yes, I would agree with that as and well. And you see that in this film very early on. Alan, um, you'll like it if you give it another chance. Yes, I think that Alan, <laughs> despite his great uh, skills, um, has the wrong view about this movie, obviously. Well, I think he tried to watch it when he was too young and without right. the proper tutelage. So he produced some short films on his own, out of his own savings. His father was a doctor, so there were well off enough uh, to finance. Privilege. Yay. Right. Well, in this case, it worked <laughs> it's out. It's fine. I'm not... I, did, I didn't mean to use that as a Pejorative. weapon. Yes. But, he uh, was, in fact, privileged to be able to do that. He was able to mm-hmm. make some uh, early films, which I've seen. I saw the... What was it? Killer's Kiss really early on, and it was a black and white film. He did some work in film noir, and then after... Uh, getting some attention doing these sort of low-budget films, he was assigned to do Paths of Glory, which was a Kirk Douglas movie. Okay. Do what with it? Uh, to It was a film about uh, 
basically the, the the foibles of war. Okay, but what was his direct. job? Oh, to direct. Okay, thank so you. So he just That's came out key. of nowhere, very small scale, and suddenly he's working they with. They were like direct the time, this movie, the not like star, right. do you know get on the film set and do um, camera work or mm-hmm. anything like that. So no, he, no, no. We're gonna straight up direct the movie. And he did a lot of revolutionary things. He has a long scene. The film is about. Um, is a, effectively a protest against war. Okay. Some soldiers who were sent to, who actually turned their backs on the, the front lines because they're being charged out into a battlefield for the glory of their general. Right, of course. The and people who get the glory are not the people who die horribly at the front line. And it's a kind of a military courtroom drama okay. about their decision not to. With the elder Douglas, you said, correct? Yeah. Okay. And the scene that what was revolutionary about that film was that he did this long, continuous take across a moving battlefield with explosions okay. going off and everything. Right, and so, so he it was, was choreographed, the right. whole thing, and yeah. Um, and then from there he went on to do Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. he, which was a sort of a mainstream movie for him. My Stanley Kubrick background, um, I knew that he directed The Shining, uh-huh. and I knew that he directed this, and I knew that he directed, uh, well, at least partially directed prior to his death, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. And I, the first of his movies that I ever saw was Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, I hate it. I hate well, it a whole bunch. That's not quite fair. Um, it's fine. It's not it, for me. No, I'm no, not no, saying I mean, it's a bad it's, movie. You can't really say that it's... And I, I, I follow and the... And he, he didn't finish it. Cap of the People not, at Right. Yeah. Right. He didn't finish it. Understood. That's fine. Um, but And then I didn't want to watch The Shining for many, many years because I'm a Stephen King fan and Stephen King is not a notoriously not a fan of that film. Uh, I have now watched The Shining, and like The Shining, and like the book, and like them as separate things. I have to think about them as separate things, because it's barely an adaptation of the book. He makes some very big changes, but the movie is stunningly beautiful, and a little creepy? Very creepy. Very creepy. Super creepy. And so this is my... Oh, and then we saw a movie which is called The Killing. Is that right? Yes. Not the other one? The, this one? This is a, And that's a heist movie, wherein the entire time all I thought was, if these people had cell phones, this wouldn't be a movie, because they're just off their mark by a minute. And yes. so and hijinks ensue that aren't hijinks. It's bad. But I like that movie very much. But it's a movie that couldn't be made today because of phone technology. Right. And he, then this is my fourth Stanley But he went on to direct a lot of controversial movies, Dr. Strangelove. No, nope. Lolita. Oh, I might have should. Mm, I've read Lolita, but I don't remember if I watched the movie. I don't think I did because I thought I don't need to watch this. I read it. I know what's going to happen. I don't need to look well, he, at it. He also strayed from the book too. He didn't really get along with adapting stuff. Why from, did he do it then? I think he did it because he liked the central idea, and he would think of how to present the idea visually As rather himself than himself. Got right. it. Okay. So I think with. Both with Lolita and The Shining, which oddly I guess enough, it's safer to license a thing mm-hmm. and make an adaptation of it that isn't true to it, rather than making your own thing and having people say that you copied right. something else. I guess maybe that makes sense. Hmm. So he he is a real visual stylist. Mm-hmm. He's incredibly meticulous, mm-hmm. really, really meticulous, and that comes across in this film. And he, he has a really detailed imagination. Yeah. And so here, this film, he actually was it was based on a short story of Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. And eventually it became its own product. Because that was like published 
alongside the movie. No, no, the Sentinel was written as a short story. No, 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 I understand that. The book. The book was published alongside the film because they worked together for several years to do this. Right. There's some very unusual things with this film. For one thing, generally when movies are made with a lot of special effects content, there's a special effects supervisor or coordinator, sometimes an entirely separate director. Kubrick insisted on shooting those scenes himself. Right. Which is really, really unusual that a director of his That stature, whole thing at the end. Right. Yeah. Is sitting there with the technicians. Okay, so this movie was he did he co write it with him? Like did uh, they yes, have they co writing credits? Okay. And okay, then what else? So just to get to the plot, because it's very simple. Yeah. It's uh, the Sentinel childhood's end. There's this is a theme in Arthur C. Clarke's writing about how our culture and our religious experiences and other things that we have on a subconscious level were influenced, maybe, by forces outside of the Earth. Right. He's so. like, I want to use the word alienist, but that's not what that word no, means. But like a person who thinks maybe we were seated or well, I don't know that like he that. believes that, but he finds a lot of interest in the idea. Like a, it's a possibility and, and, and what at if. at the time, the 60s, Nigel Neal, Eric Von Daniken, these, well, Nigel Neal was a writer who wrote the Quatermass stories, which were also about the same thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, Eric Von Daniken later on published Chariots of the Gods, which started this whole sort of cult of uh, aliens seeding the earth and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, Which continues through in the alien, the, the recent alien right. films with Prometheus. Right. That's and something that we're going to bring up probably at the end of describing the plot is how much this film has been borrowed from. Oh, I think we, we'll do it as we go. I mean, <laughs> as you just mentioned, Alien, the whole idea of the sentient computer that controls the spaceship, the robot that stays awake while everyone's in hypersleep, mm-hmm. The robot turning that whole—it's almost as if they stuck a horror film plot out of two thousand one mm-hmm. and produced the first Alien movie, and that theme keeps getting perpetuated every time they remake the film with various right, levels. Sir, of I forget there's robots in the first Alien movie. Right. Like I always forget that. Mm-hmm. I should rewatch all the Alien movies. But it's kind of like a a <laughs> conflation. Yes. Of taking this and what Westworld if, and, and whatever push and mush yes. them all together. Right, because it's a it's a sentient walking around. It's right. a data situation. Whereas in this one it's a it's very much it's a machine. It's got an eye right. and a voice like in very Star Trek. Soothing voice, very much like Bob Ross. It's less soothing when you know what happens though no, and everyone knows what happens. So the Because first... the first thing you know about this damn movie is I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. That's the first, that's the, that's like the only thing I'm like, okay, well, Hal's clearly going to be a problem at some point. I well, will say... The moment they tell you he can't fail, you know that he's going to fail. Yeah, it's very Titanic point. of right. y'all. Like, do you not learn? Or no? Unfortunately, okay. no. Infallible means uh, definitely going to break right. soon. <laughs> and probably going to kill people. All right, so you want to get into this well, plot? Well, yeah, so it part starts one? in the African desert millions of years ago. It's There's part one, and it says the dawn of man. The dawn of man. So man is dawning. It's and people in monkey suits, it's guys. It's not quite man yet. No, it's missing link and chimp babies. Right. Now, one thing, but when you say it like that, you, it sounds dismissive. No, it, 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 was, it, it worked well really done. well, actually. Because uh-huh. at first I was like, those are definitely men in suits. But as soon as my brain was like, yes, that is what you're seeing, then I, it was fine. It because wasn't distracting. There's not really a better way to do this. No. I mean, with all apologies to the CGI used in the Planet of the Apes movies, it's still CGI. And so, Although, to be fair, right. if he could have done what they did in the War for the Planet of the Apes, 
That would have been incredible. Well, it would have blown the 1968 audience's mind. Like, yeah, but I don't know that it would be any better because it's not like you were asking them to do the same things. They're not having to... Well, anyhow. It might have been. The film starts with the dawn of man. The dawn of man. There's a limited resources. Yes, there is a... There are like two clans uh-huh. and they're fighting over a water hole. Right. And so... You're following their lives for a very short period, short period of time. You were surprised by how short it was. I was life. surprised because I knew that that's mm. how this movie started. And for some reason, I had it in my head that it was going to be like a 45-minute no, 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 Dear no, Sweet no. Jesus, yeah. Why is this still going on segment of the film. Fortunately, Kubrick does have a sense of pace. Right. What was it, 10 minutes maybe? If that. Well, no, no, a little bit over, maybe. Maybe, 10 know. to 12 minutes. There's two clans. Uh, one goes to the waterhole and gets chased away by another clan. Then you see them sort of cowering in a cave, like at night. Right. And then, then they go out and there's this monolith. And by monolith, I mean iPhone. It looks like an iPhone. It's just this big, flat, rectangular object. Right. And we're invested with a lot of religious meaning. There's actually parts of, I think it's Ligeti. Who uh, is part of a, a requiem or something? That's the, and we'll go into the music. Oh afterwards. yeah, the music is all very famous classical pieces. And the reason for this is that generally, when a film is being made, uh, the composer will make an audio track of classical pieces, or even pieces from other films or something. Put them all end to end, and then show the director saying, "This is what we're thinking in terms something of like this, something, right, something like, like that. this." And Kubrick was like, "How about exactly this? And right. how about exactly this?" Because so. he saw he had, and Kubrick is a very much a real artist, and that's something lacking with movies, modern movies. That's me, old man, complaining. Grumble, grumble, but, grumble! Get off um, my lawn! Right. So this <laughs> it gives us, and again, this gets imitated so much. Anybody who's seen the film's Quest for Fire, for instance, uh, that film. We'll see how much it took from these scenes. It made an entire movie out of this 10 minutes. But they had this sort of religious experience almost, and the monolith is kind of influencing the leader of this one tribe of of primitive people. Can we even call them primitive people at this I don't point? even know what to... I know that they're not... They're, they're anthropoids. They're not yeah, quite one thing or the other. But they are completely... Co- mm. I mean, they're in monkey suits. Right. Like, what those suits are is monkey suits. Mm-hmm. So, but they're not, you but know, they're, they're upright, obviously not monkeys. They're sitting less. upright. So he's sitting amongst a pile of bones, and he's like, thinking, looking, thinking, looking, and then he picks up a bone, and he starts hitting the other bones with it, and I'm like, oh, weapons. <laughs> he's made a club, and then he goes... They go to the, back to the watering hole, and when the guy tries, or the the other alpha tries to shake, shake, you know, shoo them away like they did before, he beats them to death. And then the other apes all have their bones; they're beating him to death too. Yeah, it's so, pretty brutal. Right? Is, is it? Because I guess you don't, if you've never killed a thing, then you don't know how to kill a thing. Like, well, you don't know when the, the, the death scene is. The that precedes this is that these animals are so, or people are so benign that there's a group of tapers walking around. Just walking around, just in with completely them. Completely harmless. And it because never they, they, haven't, they don't have tools, so right. they're only eating vegetation at this point. Right, or things that are or already dead. Or things that are already dead. So he kills one, and they start eating meat, and that's another booster. They're becoming yeah. more aggressive, they're becoming stronger, more robust. 
brain and food. protein is a brain food. So now he's beginning to think more, and he becomes cunning, and and so um, so we see a probably the most famous jump cut in history, which is oh yeah, the triumphant ape creature throws his bone weapon tool in the air and it flies up, and then the next shot we see is a satellite yeah, coming into orbit. It could have been done better, though. Yeah. Like, because I, I get what he was trying to do, and he watches the thing, the bone, uh-huh. sort of rotate in the air, and he doesn't wait until it hits the same mm-hmm. uh, sort of... A, a place in the frame. Yeah. But that's sort of deliberate. It's like he didn't want it to become a joke. It turns into a bone. It was more, he's making a relationship between these two Yeah, images. but it just feels, it didn't, it, it felt clunky to me, but also mm. it's 1968, so maybe well, I should calm the There down are a thousand different versions of this that you've seen since How then. many years ago is that we that, figured out? Right. This movie was made 50 years ago. That's a, it's a half a century ago. That's five decades ago. I would like to add also, for the sake of the modern audience, there are special effects near which have not been duplicated. The techniques have gone away. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's like the pyramids again. <laughs> right. There's just things that he did there. Like, for instance, were you aware while you were watching The Dawn of Man that this was all shot on a soundstage? Yeah, that felt like a soundstage but to the me. the reason why... But when it started, mm-hmm. it was so beautiful. It was like paintings yeah. of Africa's light, uh, sun- sunsets mm-hmm. and sunrises. I don't know if it was paintings no, no, or photos. Yeah. They were panoramic views of these beautiful... I mean, and you, you're missing out, unfortunately, because the colors were stunning. Right. Well, this was what comes from him also, you know, being, being a photographer. Being a photographer, right. No, that makes sense. I was actually looking at the mouth prosthetics for the, which of the ape prefigures which were amazing. Stuart Freeborn, he did it. This prefigures what Rick Baker was able to do later, what he did for Chewbacca. Yeah. And Stuart Freeborn himself later on for Star Wars. So this was a jump in technology for ape suits. That's why yeah. saying ape suits kind of feels dismissive. I know, it feels dismissive. They're but, very impressive. Right. And once again, 50 years ago. Okay, but so, so now we're going to jump forward. And this is when I asked the dumbest question that's ever been asked. And that was, <laughs> when does this movie take place? <laughs> this movie is called 2001, A Space Odyssey, which means that at least some part of it probably takes place in 2001. Come with us on this journey. <laughs> so stupid. And yes, I was altered, but it was still a stupid question. Well, what's great about the jump is that you're now in this other world, which is very, very detailed. It is super detailed. We're um, on a plane, a pan, basically a, a, Pan a Pan Am flight to Mars, but or to uh, the moon. But what it really is, is a Virgin America flight to Las Vegas. It looks just like the inside right. of a Virgin America flight. Little TV screens in the back of the seats. I was and just like, this is eerie and she creepy. she was aware of, that I had never been aware of watching this film, and I've seen it once or twice, is Amity kept pointing out how comfortable all the chairs looked. Oh my God, every chair in this thing was looked amazingly comfortable. I was just like, can we live in this future? Where yeah. my ass feels great all of the time. So what you're seeing is a docking scene where there's a, a like a, a ship that's docking with a satellite. Yes. They don't actually land on the moon. The first yeah. Time. No. There's like a space station. Right. That a space station. Link and up to. this is what Kubrick likened having watched the complicated process of spaceships even at that time when they're docking in space. I guess it still happens. 
they have to sort of hit a rotation with each other. Yeah. And so he's playing the Blue Danube yeah. in the background. So Because it's a waltz that right. these two giant machines are doing in space. And it's really beautifully done. The, the design of the actual space station itself, the airport lounge, there's all sorts of really thoughtful touches that make yeah. it look very lived in. Down to the food that people are eating, you know, everyone's yeah, eating. Yeah, they drink their food. It's a very fancy kind of Capri Sun kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, like but like eight Capri Suns in a box right. that you can just And there's have pictures of what it's supposed to be of, like. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, I prefer Jetson's pill food to this weird, like, smoothie lifestyle. <laughs> but, but where are we? We have Soylent. Actual ass right. soylent in today's society, which is a liquid meal replacement. So here we are, Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, you've done it, and the guy face. Oh, hey, what's his name? Haywood Dr. Floyd. Haywood Floyd uh, FaceTimes his daughter. Face basically, time. yes. <laughs> it's a video phone. He calls his daughter, who's adorable and is probably somebody's daughter on I'm set sure. or something. She was super cute, and she's about to have a birthday party. But Dad's not going to make it because he doesn't care about her. He only cares about the moon. I don't well, know. Well, there's a reason why he cares about the moon. It turns out he's a scientist who's sent there to... He's in- a doctor, but we don't know what kind of doctor. Right, and we all, the first thing that we see him do is deflect questions from Russian colleagues. Like, we heard something weird's going on. Is there an epidemic? Do we need to be aware yes, of an epidemic? And he's like, down. no comment. A base on Clavius no that's comment. been... Closed down, and he is deflecting questions. He's not going to answer. He's, uh, you know, he's avoiding it. And then we find out later on that he's there to speak to a group of people about something that's been discovered. Well, how many was it? Forty feet or forty meters, or how deep was it beneath the it surface? It was deep, deep between forty feet and forty meters. We're right. not sure, but it was buried on the moon four million years ago. Now the moon. I don't know if you guys know this. On Earth, you could have something, say, in a desert like a pyramid, and the atmosphere of the Earth and the weather conditions will bury it for you. No human interaction needed. That's not the case on the moon. You have to deliberately bury something on the moon. There's no wind. That's not a thing. So something deliberately buried this thing, which turns out to be a duplicate, I guess. Of the monolith. Of the monolith. So we've got As monolith if these things are calling two, cards that are dropped all over Which places. was dropped well before the one on Earth. Right. Presumably also because nobody knows what this thing is. They haven't found the one in Africa. Right. I guess it's been buried. But the... Um, so Dr. Floyd is there giving a conference on this. Then we see him in a moon bus, which is a, a vehicle. There's a lot of really interesting design. He hasn't seen it himself. So this is going to be his first viewing of the monolith. Yeah. And then he goes, he drives out, and then he sees it. We see it. It's another monolith. Mm-hmm. They say it's been here for four million years. It was buried four million years ago. I don't know how they figured that out. Oh, the same way they figure out how things are buried on Earth, I guess. But that doesn't make sense. Radiocarbon testing? Oh, maybe. But if the moon doesn't move the... I don't know. And they're not carbon testing the actual monolith. There are people in our monolith. audience who know the answer to this question. I just don't understand how they figured out must it was be 4 million years old. Scientists. And then as they're looking at it, it starts to scream. It starts to <laughs> let off a high-pitched signal, which is directed away from the moon, which takes us to the next chapter of the story. Yes, yeah, so apparently 
And I didn't understand this. And apparently they don't tell you this until well into the thing because they mm-hmm. do mention it. But you dis- you informed me because mm-hmm. I was confused. Right. Because we paused it in the middle because this movie's pretty long. I was like, why are they going to Jupiter? So the next thing, yeah, we see is they're going to go to Jupiter to get more stupider. <laughs> uh, this is dumb. Yeah, okay. No, so there, there's this spaceship. Different different make and model than the quick Pan Am leap to the moon. Now, this is a impressive, gigantic spaceship. It's got a big round face and then a spine. That's basically what it is. Yep. Like a big head and a spine. It's a discovery, which actually we named a space shuttle after it. Oh, indeed. It's headed to Jupiter. It's 18 months later. So it's uh-huh. actually unclear when 2001 when 2001 is. happens at some point in this movie. <laughs> So I think that the previous thing might have been in 1999, and then this is 2001. And they partied. Yeah, okay. So then we're on this spaceship, and there are two people. One of them likes to jog and punch, and the other one is Dave. Right? Frank and Dave. (laughs) It's Frank and Dave. Frank is played by Gary Lockwood, who was a professional boxer at one point. So So he's he's very athletic. We him doing his exercises, and he's running around a ring uh-huh. that gravitationally spins around the to create the a, circular like a minimum part of gravity of the but he's actually running upside down at one ship. point yeah it's it's cool to look at i don't think that's how it would work i'm not a scientist and i also think flight is magic so space space flight I think doesn't that so. it would be I think it's possible, because again, he consulted a lot of engineers about this, and they tend to, from the accuracy of some of his predictions, he was pretty spot on with some of it. I don't see him failing, like often when you're watching old science fiction and they're projecting the future, they fail on something this like fail, yeah. miniaturization. Nobody I saw it coming I will say, right everybody was dressed, nobody was wearing uh, lame, mm-hmm. right. so I appreciate that. Uh, everybody looked pretty comfortable. There were, oh, along with Dave and Frank, we uh-huh. know that there's Hal. Um, he's the he's the red eye, right? And the he what he he it 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 runs the entirety of the ship. It's yes. the brain. It's the ship's brain, right? And they really talk about it like a brain later when they are trying to figure out if they can turn off higher functioning from lower. Functioning. And you see these long shots of it flowing through space, and it basically the whole thing of it passes through the screen. Uh-huh. And it's like a three-minute shot. Right. Like, every shot in this movie is real long. And I don't know if it's because of my altered state, like if I would read it differently, but I always thought, this scene is, or this shot is lovely. This shot is beautiful. This shot's now officially gone on too long. And then he switches shots, and I'm like, what's going to happen now? (laughs) There's something, and this is uh, talking to younger people, is that, we had a lot more patience, mm. I think is what it was. There's too much for me to watch. I can't have and patience. As, as I've said to you, I can't imagine a modern audience sitting and watching six hours of The Iceman Cometh, Eugene O'Neill play, and it can go on that long. Yep. Nope. And, and There's a reason Hamlet isn't done in right. its entirety anymore Hamlet in, in its entirety is over four hours long. Mm-hmm. And so people, they've lost their patience to follow with something that long. And so I think this movie, there's a lot of shots of grandeur this is coming at a time where people were not producing films like this. this I don't moment. know that now is the time people are producing right. films like this. But 
the <laughs> thing is that there's a a lot of imitation of these techniques, but it's done very quickly, as if you're not supposed to see how much well, time yeah, like spent on it. Well, yeah, like in sunshine. Right. <laughs> it just sort of zips but, along. But yeah, this one, like every shot, there's a lot of silence mm-hmm. um, or music. Right. There, I, I would say that the spoken script, like the script of just the dialogue in right. this movie is less than 20 pages long. It probably could be, yeah. Probably. It's, there's I mean, th- not the a lot The person of... who speaks the most in the film is Hal and Dr. Flo- uh, Haywood. You think so? You don't think Dave... I don't think Dave speaks enough. He, you know, um, not to the extent that Hal does, but Hal's neurotic, <laughs> I guess. He's He has some of the human foibles as well as uh, uh, the ability to do superhuman things like keep yeah. this entire machine running. Yeah, so we get kind of introduced to these three in like a newsreel fashion. Like, right, which was really smart, I yeah. think. Um, although they never, they don't say what HAL, H-A-L stands yeah, for, which was aggravating to me because mm-hmm. that's how a newsreel would do. Right. But apparently these are now ubiquitous, so mm-hmm. maybe it's like saying a Mac or whatever right. and people just know what it is. Then there are three people in pods Right, that are frozen animation. because their their expertise won't be needed until we get to Jupiter. Now, at this point, as I said, we don't know we why we're no going idea. to Jupiter, and neither does Hal. Right. Hal has no idea what the mission Which, is. Which so they're having this conversation, and Dave and Hal are playing chess. Chess or go? Hal is just beating, you know. Yeah, David chess, which is what he does all the time, <laughs> and and Hal just start you know starts going. This shit feels fishy to me. And I'm like, y'all didn't want to have this conversation on Earth? Mind when you, he, he doesn't quite phrase it that way. He yeah. doesn't say it that way. But he is like... It would be funny if he did. This feels suspicious. Like, all of this show about putting them on, these the other three on under animation, we or uh, under suspended animation, we could have done that up here. Well, before they're able to talk to anybody, which is what he's suspicious about. They're like, not saying anything. But then Hal does know, because mm-hmm. Hal's the only one that knows. Well, Hal, it's programmed, but I don't think he's aware. Oh, is it like in his subconscious because, right. or something? Oh, the uh, the, uh, the subconscious of the machine, so to speak. But right. they, um, so they kind of live this sort of long existence boring existence is the impression you get. Uh, David spends time drawing what, people who are in the pods yes. and having conversations and playing chess. And uh, Frank, who's Frank more athletic, Rubs. is tanning. I, and he's uh, sparring. Uh, shadow yeah. boxing. Shadow boxing. Um, and so, that, you know, it's just a long... You get a sense very quickly that this is a long, boring trip for them. We don't know how long they've been out there. Uh-huh. And then Hal says, hey, that, uh, there's like a... Um, like a satellite dish array, uh-huh. and he's like, in 72, within 72 hours, there's a, like a 100% chance that thing's going to fail. And they're like, well, we've run diagnostics, and it seems fine. And he's like, I'm just saying, and, you know, I've never been wrong, because this computer, apparently, this 9,000th version of a computer, I don't know if that's why he's the 9,000, has zero failure rate, a zero right. failure rate. And, and he's, I like the performance, the voice performance, for Hal, because he comes across as very genteel and very sweet, but also incredibly arrogant, the things he winds up yeah. saying. Because Frank goes out and his wonderful little pods are, I want to own one. And They're so cute. You know, I want that, it. but mixed with the round pods in the Jurassic World movies. There we go. Yeah. But I want so a round vehicle, guys. He, round. He I goes want out. To be in a ball. from the, In one of the, the, the pods with these little arms on it that fix things. And discovers there's absolutely nothing wrong with this yep. unit. 
and when Frank and Dave are discussing. So then they how, get into the one of the other pods, and they're mm-hmm. like, um, they're on the, on the uh, pretense of like running diagnostics on the pod itself. Right. They basically make it so that Hal can't hear them. They think. They think. Well, well he, well, he, he can't, can't hear them. Hear them. Uh-huh. He cannot hear them. And they're like, so if he's glitching, like if mm-hmm. he's wrong about this, what are we going to do? Because right. our ship runs on him. And if he's glitching, we need to turn off. The idea is that they want to turn off his higher functioning, like his executive functioning, right. the speaking and the calculating. And, and they want to leave. The chess playing. Yeah. Maybe they yeah. just wants they to want to chess. like they want to lobotomize it basically. Right. They want to take out all of the higher thinking and leave the breathing and the heartbeat, which is basically the ship's function, keeping everyone alive, key, um, uh, intact. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why isn't the plan? Hey, everything seems not great. Let's head back to Earth and see what's happening. But you found out later on why that couldn't happen either. I actually didn't. Because as we learn from Dr. Floyd, there is a lot of Russian interest because this film was Oh, World that's right. There's a, there's a fucking space race or whatever. So what happens is that, and again, remember when the film was written. Yeah, but they're out there in space and there's only five people. If somehow the intelligence got back that they were going to, that what was going on and how monumental this was. Well, they had This is first contact. The... the something was going back because there was a newsreel on them going to Jupiter. Right, so they could very well be... That's why nobody was allowed to know what the mission was or people were put on in suspended animation. Anyhow, yeah. anyway, it didn't, very it hush-hush. It makes no sense. It, they make it made sense. poor choices. And, but, well, this is the same as every fucking... And they did it in life, too. Every movie where they're like, oh, we have alien life. Let's have a decision before anything goes bad about what we're going to do when and if it goes bad, yeah. and they never have that thing. It's never clear that we're going to lock your ass in an airlock and blow you to kingdom come if you get a space parasite on you. Sorry, we love you, right. bye <laughs> They never have that conversation, and then all of humanity is doomed. Well, so, so, anyways, they which think is Hal film, didn't, actually. <laughs> yes, they think Hal didn't hear them, but Hal reads lips from the side. He's very talented. So he knows what's up. And so when Frank goes out to replace the array, because he's going to go back out and put it out, because they're like, well, I guess what we'll do is leave it, and when it fails, we'll come up with a fix, because we couldn't find a way to fix it before it fails, because it's fine. And, well, he's out there. Hal murders him. He murders him, and it's done in a very kind of, he now, murders him with his own pod. The yeah, and he, there's a a shot that I always found disturbing of Frank grasp, gasping for air and trying to reconnect his air hose. Well, his body just sort of spins out into, and what I imagine on a big screen, and we have a fairly large television. Yeah. But on a big screen, must have been kind of nightmarish just watching him getting smaller yeah, and I've smaller seen gravity. and smaller. That's the thing. You've seen Gravity, which took its entire plot from this from scene. From this scene. Yeah, no, this scene is Gravity. So um, Dave goes out to try to save him because he sees what's going on. Yeah, Dave gets in another pod and goes out sans helmet and gloves. Right, he so just jumps in a pod. He jumps in a pod, and then he goes and scoops up uh, Frank's body right. um, with his little, all his own little arms. But 
Frank's air has been disconnected and it's been right. maybe five minutes. And There's that's, no that way. seems kind of sad because it's obvious that Frank is dead at this point. Yeah. And I wasn't clear that his air co- air hose had been right. cut, but you did say that that because he was struggling for it. You see yeah, no, I I understood now, but mm. I think I may have looked away when he was struggling because all I saw was him with his little, mm. and then just spinning, and but he wasn't moving, like his leg right. was in his legs were in a very distinctive I position. Must have died they very moved. quickly. I would think so. Yeah, and they don't show his face, which I was actually a little bit surprised about. Right. Like, I expected a rictus of some sort, and right. I got nothing, which I'm fine with, to be clear. <laughs> but I, that is something that I expected. I've seen The Shining. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, he did all his rictus there. So he scoops up his body, and he goes back in, and he says, open the pod bay doors, Hal. And Hal's like, quiet. do that. Nope. Right. Well, he doesn't he does say, say anything. Eventually. And then he says, Hal, Hal. And it, then it becomes smooth criminal. All I could hear in my head was Michael Jackson's smooth criminal. Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> Are you okay, Hal? Are you okay? He's not okay. And then Hal says, I can't do that, Dave. And Dave's like, oh, well, I'm going to come in through the fucking emergency exit, basically, is what he says. And he's like, I mean, you could try, but you don't have a helmet. It's not going to go well for you. Um, and so then Dave, like, turns to his pod and, like, flings Frank's body. I don't understand the flinging. Because he wasn't, like, trying to get propulsion off of yeah. it. I don't know why he had to, why he couldn't just let it go. Except to maybe he didn't want it near him. If he couldn't bring him inside, right. he didn't want his body just bumping and, up know, against I never paid attention to that. That's an interesting choice. I think that it was... It might have been some sign of anger. It, it might, yeah, where he was just like, oh, and the only right. thing he could do. But he like, yeah, he because he could have just released him. Uh-huh. Or he could have floated back into the ship or he could have gotten in the way of what the... Yeah. Because he has to rotate the pod. He has, yeah, he has door. to rotate the pod around because what now he's going to do is go yeah. in... It's something really stupid. He's going to go gonna in do. through the butt. Um, there is like an emergency airlock. Right. But it is open to space and he doesn't have a, space, uh, a helmet yeah. on. I'm pretty sure his head would like mush down into a raisin or something. I don't know I, how space works. I don't works. know how fast that happens. I know that. I feel like it happens uh, pretty quick, but he ends up. He makes it. I don't. He well, he's he inside it. the airlock. Yeah. Most of the time, and he does get the hell beaten out of him. He's yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And so he's able to shut the door. He um, gets in. The pod's still outside, um, but he gets in. Right. And, and then you just see him sort of mercilessly trekking through. Hal's brain. The well through the ship right. to get to basically Hal's brain, Which is and enormous. Hal the whole time is like, "Hey Dave, what are you doing?" Hey, Dave. <laughs> oh, also we should say, and Dave doesn't know this at this point. Yeah. At the same time as he has murdered Frank and locked Dave out, right. he has turned off the life, life support. support. So there are no other living things on this ship. The right. three. Uh, cryogenically frozen individuals are unimportant to the plot because they are never not cryogenically frozen. So, but I, I don't know. We don't see Dave finding this out, right. so we don't know if. Well, the implication is when you see him come into the airlock, he has no gloves or a helmet. Right. The next time you see him, and he's going into the brain, he's put he has, a different yeah. It's, helmet and that's on. again one of those neat little touches. He has somebody a different. He's helmet wearing on. like a red suit and a green helmet. Right, like you can tell it's somebody else's helmet that he just snatched because he can't trust Hal to not right. just turn off life support because he doesn't need it. Yeah, exactly. So he goes in and he deprograms Hal, and that's where we get. Uh, he's it's like he's he's. 
It's almost like he's given him... It's a Flowers for Algernon situation or right. an Alzheimer's situation. Like, I could understand where people would, who have relatives with dementia would have mm-hmm. problems with this scene. Mm-hmm. Like, it would it'd be... Because it's affecting. Because he is forgetting things. Mm-hmm. And just remembering back to the day he was programmed and, the, and he's taught to sing a song, which apparently is the first song that m- machines are, the were ever machine taught. The machine ever was taught, yeah. Um, and so then he says, yes, yeah, sing for me. And he sings it, and he just gets slower and deeper. It is a, it's a weirdly affecting, slower. very sad kind of scene. It is. Because he's, he's sort of begging for his life. Right, he is begging for his life. He, he's trying and to, Dave is like, with a screwdriver, ending his life. Just that, like, mm That scene... You've done killed everyone, I can't. What works for me for that scene is it goes through a whole range of emotions. Even though it's a machine. It's pleading with him in this very calm mm-hmm. way... And that becomes almost funny, like, I promise I'll do better at this time, yeah, Dave. Right. I'm like, we I can totally work this out, Dave. <laughs> right. it's, it also feels very much like an abuser. Right. Where it's like, I'll never again, right? <laughs> like, and that's why, that scene, if nothing, this scene alone, there's so much going on in it. Yeah. It is really well done. And it's done, the, he's inside of this thing, and it's all red. It's just red <laughs> lights everywhere around him. Which makes it feel like he's like inside of his guts, right? Ugh. Yeah, and then it, you, the visual that's provided is like he's unscrewing these something holding in place these objects that look like cassettes. Yeah, and they're once he twists the screwdriver, they sort it of like pops pop out. out like a almost like an eight track. Yeah, is what it felt like to me. Which y'all may not know what that is. Right. <laughs> um. It's a pre-cassette cassette, they will be. Yeah, and so he turns them all the way back, and mm. once he turns all of his higher functioning off, right. this video plays. And the video is... Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd saying, hey, we found this thing on the moon, and it's pointing us to Jupiter, so you've got to go to Jupiter. It's been inert, inert, save for a powerful radio emission aimed at Jupiter. Only Hal knows the true objectives. Right. So, oh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe if they said that they were going to turn around, Hal would be like, no, 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 we got to go. We got to, we need to get to Jupiter because of first contact, because of Russia. I don't know if Hal cares about the race with Russia. I think think Hal is programmed or he's made to care about this. Yeah, but is that what he cares about, or is it the so. I think alien, it's like, is the intelligence thing? Yeah, I think it might be his com- compulsion is just to follow the mission, right, no matter right. what. Well, I was in the impression that he didn't know, but um, but anyhow, we, we can yeah. go into that later. So then the next step that happens is, could be called the Dawn of Man 2. Yeah. Um, so they get to Jupiter, uh-huh. and there's another monolith just floating in space, in space, out, uh, sort of off of one of the moons. Probably, right. was it... Europa, or I think. Probably Europa. And it's ginormous. It's yes. the biggest. It's huge. And so Dave gets on another pod. Bravely gets in another Bravely pod. gets in another pod. I guess it's the third and final pod, right? Or, no, no, because he... He may have pulled in the yeah, other ones. Yeah, he might have pulled in the other Who knows? And then... And then it's just uh, like 15 minutes of... Well, not 15 minutes, but... Uh, How long is it? I, I don't it know. It felt like 15 minutes. I was altered. He actually... the. So it's all of these weird 
But we have to explain images. in the narrative what it's supposed to be. Well, I don't know. I, like he fell into like a wormhole? It's like... The, and he's going through... The big... I, the impression that I got was that the very biggest of the monoliths is like a gate. Okay. And so he goes through into sort of like a dimensional portal and... It's just weird. You're getting it's weird, like a and then psychedelic you see all of show. these images, which are very cool, and you said were various yeah. liquids. And there's there's different things. Liquids filmed from a very, my understanding, like a powerful, almost microscope on tiny slides and watching okay. their interactions, chemical interactions. Chemical in interactions. So it, because my question mm-hmm. when we were watching was, is this a practical or a digital effect? Yeah, it's a practical effect. Because the first part of it you can tell, which is got used for you know, network credits all of the time, which is this sort of, like, um, geometrical shapes. And there's this Yeah, I've of, forgotten that part entirely. Yeah, because yeah. it's not as impressive it's anymore not, because it's been copied so much. Yeah. But the liquid part, to me, always looked cool because things yeah. are changing shape yeah, and color. Yeah, it's like if you were to put, a like, like a bunch of acrylic paints or something mm-hmm. and watch them mix or... Right. Um, which, you know, I watch cake decorating videos and there's things like that in, in there and I'm like, oh, it's so pretty. And Dave, and then these are flashed with Dave's, like, freak out faces. Right. Like, he looks like he's getting squished and he's, he's filmed in almost like a, um, like a reverse, almost like a negative. Right. So he's like green and sort of see-through like an x-ray and then his face is contorted every time that we see these flashes of him mm-hmm. as he's experiencing whatever this time folding or space folding is it's very weird and and, and it um, feels like it goes on for a very long it time it does because there's three separate segments to it one of which was the geometrical kind of shapes and the sort of liquidy thing and then the very final one is probably the least impressive which is it looks like a group of colored filters over recognizable things yeah i didn't like that part because again that's also it's that's like i've seen this before and, and then, then go ahead you tell you explain what happens next so he's in the pod in a room, and then the pod's gone. No, wait. wait. Oh, wait. He's in a pod in a room, and there's nobody in the room. And then the pod's gone, and he's in the room, but it's like he's like old. Now, like, we have to stress when you say face. room. Okay. This is not a futuristic room from 2001. No, no, no. This it's looks like, like a drawing room. Like a neoclassical with style room Except with, that is done in shades of white and green. Right. And it's it's appointed with a bed and a table. There are columns. Uh, there is art. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. It's and but it's, it's a lit room. From the floor. The floor yes, is that's right. The that's floor the only looks futuristic like a disco element floor. in the room um, is the floor. And so there are like no shadows. Right. Which makes the lighting just feel jarring right and so there's the pod in the room and no people and then there's dave in the room but he's like got wrinkle face like like he's aged like 20 years Mm -hmm. and then he we and he's still in his space suit and then we see a view of an old man eating and then we are the old man and it's dave even older right and then he finishes eating and he looks over and there's an the oldest man sleeping on the bed and then we are that and then then the monolith is at the end of the bed and the oldest man reaches for it and then it turns into a baby floating in space and no no not yet uh, just a baby right. in a placenta on the bed and then it's a baby floating in space looking at the earth that appears to be the size of earth but let me will assures me that it no, is it's not, not a in the size of kaiju earth. baby no it's just in a distance <laughs> Um, and the film ends. With crazy big eyes. Like, like super Dave. big eyes. 
It's recognizably Dave. Is it? Yeah. Okay. He, it wasn't to me, but I was altered. So, and then... So was this film then, by that point. Then the movie is over. It's a, <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely, lovely movie. And like I said, as we were watching, I was like, this is beautiful. This has gone on too long. Oh, what's next? This is beautiful. <laughs> this has gone on too long. <laughs> And that was consistent with every scene. But also, like, yeah, the stuff, the Pan Am stuff mm-hmm. at the beginning, I was like, ooh, this looks like now. Right. Minus the Capri Sun. Well, I guess not even minus the Capri Sun food. Weird. Yeah, I was like, that looks like a flight to Vegas. What's happening? <laughs> what I have always loved about this film, it does not move at a pace for a lot of people. It might be very slowly paced for some. Um, what I like about it is how absolutely thorough this world is. Yes, the, it's thorough, but also he's doing things and going, I don't know what it is, you figure it out. Right. But you were so thorough before. <laughs> like, what's How do you mean? Like, he is very, his details mm-hmm. are very explicit. His plotting is vague. Well, he didn't <laughs> seem to be really interested in telling you anything. He was like, you're... Yeah, he's like, I'm not about the story. I'm about the how right. we're gonna, how these people are living. And I'm like, but the story is weird. <laughs> That's probably why when you see something earlier like um, like Spartacus, it seems like very strange that this is a Kubrick movie because he generally, especially in his later years, there's not much dialogue even to things like The Shining. No, that's true. I think the most dialogue movie, heavy movie of his later years would probably be um, Clockwork Orange. Oh, that's him too. Well, I mean, how could you not tell it was him? There's direct correlations there between There is direct correlations, yeah, in between one. this and that. I have blocked much of that movie from uh-huh. my mind because it um, wounded me. Yeah. It scarred me a little bit. It's very traumatic. And And so I don't... The Shining has had that same effect on some people. I knew... I watched it with a friend who then took a couple of days to get it out of her system. Mm -hmm. It was like it was giving her nightmares. And probably not because it did anything intent... Well, there were obviously horrific images at the forefront, but something about the very sterile... If you have a violent alcoholic person Uh in your life, I could see The Shining being scarring. Right. Same for... Clockwork Orange, right. which I think is why it was scarring to me. Oh, it's I was just like, this is terrible. I, I've still never seen Singing in the Rain because I can't with that song. Right. I just can't. Well, but also anybody who's ever suffered any actual extreme Trauma. physical violence. Yeah. I mean, there's a, you, you don't see the rape scene. Yeah, but, but sexual assault and physical assault are. Yeah, that's what this yeah. movie is about. Um, but yeah, uh, I appreciate with 2001 how thorough it was. I appreciate how beautiful the film was. And the fact that it took time to just sort of be beautiful as an object. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that that's why the alteration helped, actually. Right. Was because I could just be like, it's so pretty. Right. You're not going to watch this film. And I wasn't like, it's so pretty, but why is nothing happening right now? Because well, nothing would happen right. for long periods of time. You're supposed to sort of just be a part of it, and he, that's why he wasn't big on plot. He's not explained to you what's going on. It's just like, and I actually think that it's a movie that I could watch going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Because, the this, like you said, we said, the soundtrack is iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and no words, right? right? So I don't have any of the talking. There's very little talking in it. 
And I could just, I could almost watch it like one of the old visualizations for mm. MP3 players that I used to fall asleep to in college, mm. where they would um, have these out programs that would algorithmically follow the rhythm of the music you are listening to. This movie feels like a, one of those with a sort of a plot. <laughs> sort <laughs> of a plot. Wanna, just from the very beginning of the film, as we talked about, everything, everything that this movie did was imitated and followed to the point to where there are some things that will lose their impact with an audience because... And one thing I pointed out to you, even at the time, the design of the spaceships. Yeah. This was the way that everything looked afterward. Because right, but well, also uh, nothing looks like it because didn't they? You said that they destroyed, destroyed the models. It. He destroyed the models so that they couldn't just be used right. in B B level movies. Right, forever. That were that were made on the same lot or whatever. Right, He's, MGM is not going to reuse Which is, this. I mean, right. I mean, they were famous for that. I mean, even in Citizen Kane, right. there's that scene. Where they're at a picnic and there are pterodactyls right, flying they're using around stock because they're Kong. reusing yeah stock footage. So the thing is, this film was so expensive that he could see them reusing it over and over and over again, and lessening the impact of the lessening film. Lessening so it every single time. He had you people do that. destroy it. The, the yeah. Jupiter model, if I'm not mistaken, was something like forty feet long. It was enormous. It was, was it's, and his, it's beautiful. It looked yeah. to me, um, and you didn't really understand what I meant when I said it, and I don't know if I'm going to get yeah. better at saying it. It felt. 3D printed to me, uh-huh. like it was very smooth, and then all of the details were like raised up on uh-huh. it, like it looked like a 3D printed object well, now, just, we, which we, obviously right. is not what was done then. Right. So I don't know. When Alex and I, my son, were watching the movie, we were pointing out how the the effect of how gleaming white everything is, and how he did put enough character showing that everything would be in focus at the same time, because when you're looking through space. You're not looking mm-hmm. through a haze. Yeah. You're not looking through, you know, dust. No, the clarity is pretty So it, everything is lit in this strange way where it's just glaring at you all yeah. the time. And the other thing that was also about space there, there's no sound in space. Right. The sound is coming from the inside of the air. So there's a lot spaceships. of... There's a lot of Darth Vader sounds. There's right. a lot of breathing and yeah. heartbeats. Because um, the only noise you're getting is from the And the whooshing of, of, like... Blood. Right. What I What I would think is, like, when you can hear... When it's so quiet and you can hear your own blood. Right. Um, in your veins, there's a lot of that sort of biologic sound mm-hmm. up against this very mechanical. Which is a great contrast. Images, and but when I talk about spaceships, look at the difference between something that was done even a few years earlier, where spaceships still look like flying saucers, really look like rockets mm-hmm. recognizably, and then you jump to this, and then Good everything. How this gets out of orbit, but yeah. well, it was never. It wasn't built in orbit. It was built oh, you think it was built outside of orbit? Okay, well, that makes sense then. Um, but everything looks different. Everything from Star Wars to even some of the, the same technicians wound up working in things like Close Encounters. Well, yeah, there was, I mean, even when he was going into the airlock, I'm right. like, this is like the Death Star. This right. is like going into the little part of the Death Star. Hi, I haven't seen Star Wars, so <laughs> I'm just guessing, but that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> There's a lot of design similarity. The the, the his whole emphasis on the round images and all the everything. It's just influenced so much. It's hard to say. You were watching a television commercial. That oh, recent like this morning. Right. It was like a detergent commercial that was like da 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 da. It's like it's impossible <laughs> to say how deeply this 
you know, measure how deeply this affected the consciousness of the people who watched it, the people who and came And I after just it. saw a, vo- there was a Vox article that was like, here's all the stuff that's been influenced by 2001. Right. And I'm like, mm, you're going to want to add to that. Like every right. day, there's more stuff that's added. That's, and, it's, and I think that mm-hmm. it's, it's being, it's influenced. Like, I'm sure I've done things that were influenced by it before I saw it. Right. Like, I promise that it's that's that, happened. That, yeah. And so culturally, it's just like, it's zeitgeist. Well, when Orson Welles' assistant came, he talked about how his relationship with a, a really phenomenal um, director of photography, I think it was Greg Toland, he said, who basically, Orson would just turn to him and say, can we do this? And he would go, yeah. He'd never thought about things like, you know, mounting, because he did the swooping shots through buildings, things that are very common now in Citizen Kane. But he had a director of photography who's like, sure, we can do it. Mm-hmm. Never said no to him. Mm-hmm. And so he says it was his own naive approach to it. Mm-hmm. And so now we're still using that visual language, you know, flying above uh, rooftops, and then you go in through a window. That was one of the shots in Citizen Kane. Uh, these low angle shots that were made by basically getting a jackhammer and cutting up the studio floor and putting a camera in a pit mm-hmm. and adding ceilings to the sets, which they hadn't been doing up until that time. So every movie after Citizen Kane had elements of this, to, even to this day. Right, because they figured right. out how to do some things because that they had never done before. Basically because one guy and another guy who's not telling him no are working together in it. And 2001 yeah. was filled with those. Well, filled with that. Well, and he did a lot of it. He was like, right. you don't have to tell me whether we can do it or not. We're doing it, and exactly. I'm going to do and it. And the special effects people from that film... Because I've I've made friends with not friends with them I know some of them through Facebook. Um, we're telling stories about working six days a week. Of course. And for a year or so, and then just yeah. Like, no, this feels very much like one of those movies that would have been in production, and it was expensive. It was very expensive at the time, which is why MGM was really angry that he destroyed all the spaceships because they wanted to yeah, recoup he's the like, cost this of the is a, Yes, right. We are investing in mm-hmm. this movie and other movies that will be able to use this stuff in this movie. Nope. No, you are not. But yeah, um, I remember I looked up the, the budget and I was like, hot damn, that's a lot of money for 1968. Right. Um, and for a movie without a shit ton of people in it. Right, but his whole idea Because, is, like, when I right. hear the, the, the budget for, you know, Infinity Wars, I'm like, well, yeah, did you see who stars in it? All really? of them had to get paid, and then they had to make a movie. <laughs> like, this is one of the rare films to me that creates an utterly convincing world. Because when you're watching... Well, yeah, and it's creepy how close... To, like, yes. Like <laughs> reading... Well, like when I read... Um, Oh, what's the... I always reference it. And now I can't think of it. What is the sci-fi book from the 40s that had birth control pills in it? Oh, A Brave New World. Brave New World. Mm -hmm. Where I'm like, he fucking called his shot. This is a thing that's definitely going to be happening. And 20, 30 years later, yep. Right. But when I was reading it, I was like, how did he know? And they're like exactly what birth control pills are. It's very weird. And there's a lot of the, what I like is that he moved past science fiction movies before this. Women in short skirts, mm-hmm. rubber monsters, purple, um, lame. Right. So much lame. Why were we wearing lame outfits 
the LeMay onesies in space. Why? Who decided that I, was a good idea for 30 years? Watching science fiction movies with my son at one point was like, you knew a person was an alien being because their hair was green and they were wearing uh, a funny suit or a girl was having a, uh, you know, a skirt that barely covered her ass. I can see that on a bus going to Berkeley now. You know, it's not like yeah, any it of does those features or translates. Everything in this movie really does translate as a different time, a different place. Yeah. Down oh, to the... and then one of the questions that I had was, mm-hmm. so they have this monolith, which mm-hmm. presumably kicked off our violence, mm-hmm. let's say, or quote-unquote civilization. Right. And then we don't know anything about how culture evolved after uh-huh. that. But they do refer to, like, right when Haywood is getting on the moon right. thing, he has to give his name, because um, they have, like, a biometric right. scanner, or it's a voice voice scanner, to, to know that it's him. And they ask for his Christian name. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so Christianity apparently is still a thing. Right. Which is good, because we could do, like, um, what's his name, who brought back Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat, and just pretend it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Um, but I was just, I was a little surprised by that because I would think that if history played out differently, that Christ wouldn't be a right. you know, household name. No, but I don't know. Something that Alex and I, when watching it, and again, I'm very theologically minded, so I'm taking this from a specific framework and a reference point, is that the, I don't think they started the beings intended to start violence or history of violence. No, I don't Intended think so, to teach us how to use a tool. Yeah. <laughs> and then we used it to kill people. you can't get to space without a screwdriver. So. Right. And you can't kill a robot without a screwdriver either, apparently. But I think that we both saw this kind of star child at the end of the film as almost like a messianic figure. Like he's Clark, Arthur C. Clark, or Kubrick themselves, you know, because they were working so closely together, saw this as an alternate messiah. Um, One created sort of by technology, not necessarily technology, because you still don't know how they do it. I mean, they're so sophisticated to us, they are practically gods for intents and purposes, whatever they and are. And they are never seen. That's they the are never thing. seen, which we is, don't know. also creates a sort of a godlike but, aura. But your assumption is that they used the body of the Dave to mm. or cross with a, them. A fusion of him. And made the baby. Made the baby. Out of the body. Who we of see him floating towards Earth, like, you know, the poem. But once again, Slouching towards you Bethlehem see him to be born. and he is the size, that baby is earth-sized. It's right. unsettling. <laughs> I'm like, he's going to eat it. <laughs> don't eat the earth. <laughs> but you get what I mean. It's, yes, it's, I guess so. I don't, I don't, so, I don't know. But it, 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 he's, I'm not theologically minded. But I mean, in the very la- least, even if you're not theologically minded, they did produce a hybrid and he is, uh-huh. at least metaphorically, visiting the earth. He's traveling to earth. Yes. So the thing is, they've created a new species that's probably their counterpoint or their spokesperson, which again becomes very theological, whether you mean to or not. Right. Um, is it Christ? Well, hopefully, no. their intentions are a lot better since they, you know. Um, there is a sequel to this film. There are several book sequels that Arthur C. Clarke wrote. There was I don't a sequel. Want any of that. Well, it was produced in the 80s. It's a, actually, I didn't want to either. It's a very good film, though. I saw it with, uh, with my son this again. This is the 20. 20- 2110 or something? Uh, 2010. 2010. And this is Haywood Floyd, the actor who played him, uh, is, it was, had passed on, so they brought back, uh, or they brought uh, Roy Scheider to play. Enjoy Roy Scheider. And this film follows the same sort of path where it's, he's back on Earth, he's trying to forget about the disaster that happened to the discovery that just disappeared in their world. 
Okay, so and it just a, poofed out of existence. Right, he's approached in a very tenuous position by the Russians to have a joint space flight to go find out what happens this time. No secrets. Oh, this sounds and it's like him a terror. And go a ahead. very young Helen Mirren. Oh. Who's wonderful in this movie. She's wonderful in everything. And a cast of actual English and Russian actors. This was the beginning of the end of the Cold War in the 80s. Oh, okay. So, so they were going to work together with... Russian celebrities with... and, I mean, Russian actors and American actors. So they travel and not a lot more gets answered other than that... Um, What's the point? Hal, it turns out, uh, Bob Babylon, who was his computer programmer, discovered that Hal was lied to and that's the reason why he became neurotic and killed everyone. He was told to do it. And so that makes this other element that's... Hal was lied to? Right, he was lied to about what the mission was supposed to be. And he was deliberately... And that's why he was like, okay, you're telling me X, right. but this is what I'm observing. Right. And so... So that doesn't make sense, which is which is the thrust of that conversation right. he has with Dave, where I'm like, why did he not raise his concerns before they were all the way in space? And he becomes a very sympathetic character suddenly because you realize he had no control over what was going right. on. Right. No, if you tell a thing that is 100% logical lies and then expect them to be able to continue to carry right. out their mission in the face of actualities, right. it's going to create paradox, and they don't do good with that. So it's actually really... So that's uh, why you always program robots with the number one rule to not hurt humans. The Asimov laws. Of, Asimov laws. Uh, so it's a really, it's a worthwhile film. Uh, David Bowman comes back. He's pretty like, by the same actor who looks exactly the same 20 years How later. How could Dave come back? Dave comes back because he's not quite human anymore. He's but one of them. he's all gone. Well, Is he's, it the baby growed up? It's the baby, and then it does the same thing it does at the end of this film. It's it's Dave Bowman at different... He's an old man. He's a young man. He's a, I don't like... I, that was unsettling uh, to me. I didn't enjoy that Because part. he's actually shifting a lot through time, and yeah. it, it winds up... Well, because my, my sense mm. was this was all happening... It, like God, omnipresent, right? Mm. Um, so it's all happening at the same time. Right. Which, as a person, doesn't work nicely but in my brain. But if you ever get a chance, it's actually a good film. I would re recommend it to people who are curious about the furtherance of the story. It's also a lot more human. It's The emphasis is on, it's a great cast, Helen Mirren, John Lithgow, um, Roy, Scheider. Roy Scheider, and two of the sorry, actors from the original film. I'm sorry, I'm Dalton Dion. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, if you... If anyone's interested in what happens after the story, it's actually a very good, you said? 2010 mm. Odyssey Two. Odyssey Two. Well, they're just they, digging themselves a deeper hole with well, me here. That was <laughs> it. But again, it's just it's more of a standard movie. It's mm. not oh, okay. the the and who beauty. directed it? Peter Hyams. I don't know who, who that is. said he was terrified at this. Yeah. Uh, and they Especially had, because he was probably <laughs> expecting Kubrick to come up behind him with a crowbar at any moment. But apparently Kubrick or an axe didn't mind the film at all. He's like, "Well, there, you know, you went a different direction. I went no." Nope. He he right. looked at it the same way he wanted Stephen King to look at The Shining. Fucking, I did my thing. <laughs> right. with it. So how about you get off my nuts? And Stanley Kubrick, I, I I feel I don't ever feel bad for Steven Spielberg, but. I think it's funny how Spielberg has tried so hard to be Stanley Kubrick. It's not going to happen, buddy. To the extent to you. where when Kubrick died... You make died, serviceable films. Right. He made Eyes Wide Shut. He finished Eyes Wide Shut. He finished Eyes Wide Shut, but he also... Stanley Kubrick wanted to do more science fiction. He wanted to do AI. And he could not make it work. 
And, you know, Because who also didn't make it work. Right. But Steven Spielberg <laughs> insisted he could do the film and mm-hmm. failed. So. I think I liked that movie when I watched it, but I mm-hmm. don't. I was young. I was a young. Spielberg does not know how to end a movie. Um, it's like Stephen King with books. Sorry, well, dude, I love you, but wow. It's like, how many times have you seen, like, an unnecessary fourth act in a, or fifth act in a Steven Spielberg movie? I mean, like, if we're going to start throwing that out, Peter Jackson, you are on notice. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes a, a, a final act that changes everything that you've seen before, very much like Eyes Wide Shut, where like, what, we just got oh, a I didn't, I didn't make it to the end of Eyes Wide Shut. I couldn't. Mm. The piano, ding, 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 ding. I was yeah. out. I, was, I can't do this. But it's also, it's... Not if you're going to make me look at this much Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. I'm out. This is like torture. Nicole Kidman I could look at. Tom nope. Cruise, not so much. She looks like an ice queen. I can't. I don't want to talk about it. Anyways, are we done with this movie? I think we're done with this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm getting tired. Okay. And we have to go for what we're doing next. All right. So we were talking, and we're both a little nervous about doing TV shows. Because we can overcommit to something, and then you're just sort of in it for a long time. Yeah, nobody like likes listening to people who are like slogging their way through a thing. Um, not to mention, a lot of the TV shows that we do want to do, which I'm sure we would enjoy, are like very long. So what we're gonna do for season three, and may, this might be the new format for the show going forward, but season three will be for the end through the end of this year at least, um, starting in June. So we're gonna have a. The last episode of May is going to be to be determined because I don't know what we're going to do for it. But what we're going to do is for each month, like for June, the first movie we're going to watch is going to be a movie that was released in June of 1978. The second movie we watch is going to be released, uh, have been released in June of 1988, uh, followed by June of 98 and June of 2008. Um, and then we're going to try and stick with things that either one or both of us haven't seen and that have some cultural significance. Now, August may be a rough month. In August of 1968, two movies were released. One of them was a Woody Allen film that I refused to watch. So we're watching the other one. <laughs> and whether or not it's, it's of import. Um, what was the other one? Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars. Which is... Um, Which seems like an interesting movie regardless. It's an interesting movie. It is n- not a huge culturally relevant movie, but it is a good thriller, as I remember. I don't... We'll see. <laughs> I hadn't seen all of it because it was butchered for television. Oh, see, I'm a little concerned about finding it, too. That's now, the other piece. Here's something that maybe the audience won't understand, too. It used to be on television... Networks and Practices, which is weird now that we're watching things like Westworld. And, well, yeah, but Westworld, um, that's not uh, But network television, television yeah. would cut up to 10 or 15 minutes of a movie if they had to. Oh, yeah, and they would tell and, you at the beginning, cut for length and content. content. And then they would actually hire the same actors back to redub parts of their dialogue. Mm-hmm. Or not the same Henry actors Fonda sometimes. Henry Fonda calls someone a son of a beast in a movie once. Yeah. I was like, son of a beast. Well, um, that still happens because right. they do airport cuts airport, and things well, like that. Well, airport cuts dubbing cuts. them over. I think they have a, like a second fully track because I know that that works sometimes. But it's du- It's not usually... Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, with some exceptions, it's dubbed over. Uh, the They're still a, mouthing uh, the original thing um, with some exceptions. Son of a beast. Well, that's not the, that's actually I would call somebody that. That's not a terrible. Or somebody had the great idea of, of screening Fort Apache, the Bronx, the, the 
very violent film about uh, police officers in New York on network TV, and I was rolling with just what they came up with to. That's the thing. Like, there's freak you, mother grabber. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 worse to me. Son of a beast sounds pretty good. I'm like, that's not terrible. Um, And it kind of matches up with the uh, mouth uh, shapes. Uh, I don't see why they don't just shoot them silent. Frankly. Oh, some, I think they might. They used to do that with international movies. They would just have them mouth the dialogue. Spaghetti westerns, some of the Bond movies, because they had it's international It's a mouthing cast. dialogue. Uh, it, it doesn't work. You can't... Well, I Goldfinger, mean, um, Gert Fober doesn't speak English, so he mouthed German, uh, English words. That's fine. That's different. That's, the, that's very right, different than me as an English speaker. Right just making the pantomime of speaking, especially right. with emotion, yeah. it's almost impossible to not have the sound come out. Yeah. Which is why I kind of like in Les Mis when they would sing live on set. Mm-hmm. I don't think they needed to use the singing live on set, but you get that emotion, right. and that emotion in the face when you're actually belting out those right. words. It's different than if you're just lip syncing it. Right. So that's what we're going to do starting in June. I'm going to put up, I guess, monthly. We're, we figured out the first two years we have to still go through, or the first two months we still mm-hmm. have to go through the rest of them. But I have a fun spreadsheet that we'll get, that you'll <laughs> never have to see. But How I often will. do you hear the words fun and spreadsheet together? You don't know enough fun people because I hear that regularly. Okay, well, it's a generation. I don't. I work thing. by myself. That's okay. a lie. I don't know what I was even saying. No, right you, I really believe your lie. So, but that's what. So that's what we're gonna do uh, for the through the end of the year. And if it goes well, and we like it, because I like these movie episodes where they're very different one mm-hmm. to another, and we can talk about how f- film changes from decade to decade, because right. we're gonna be looking so at w- exact decade differences. What is your takeaway from the seventies? That shit's bleak, yo. <laughs> Some gritty, gritty, grittiness. Right. And we're going to stay stay in the 70s, like the mm-hmm. 70s. And if we do this for next year as well, mm-hmm. we'll just do 79, 89, 99, mm-hmm. and 09. And then we'll be free of the 70s. <laughs> and into the aughts and the... What is the things with the ones? I don't know. What is the tens? That doesn't make sense. There's a word for it. I don't know what it is. It's the one equivalent of aught. Uh... So we could continue to do this for a while. Right. Do I say we we're podcasting this for a decade? We could. Um, and then that would bring us back to the eights, right? So yeah. uh, if this works, that will be good. We're and trying it out. We're going to try it out through the end of the year for season three. And um, for months where there are additional spaces... Mm-hmm. There are two of those for the end of the year. I think there are. Uh, uh, there's an extra Thursday in August and an extra Thursday in November. So we may do something that's current, like because I almost want to do a Black Panther for the end of this month. I think that that would be an interesting addition because we've yeah. done things too where we've just like the getting to know you episode. Yeah. Where we can do something. We can just do a plug things in, or if there are two movies that we really want to see mm. from a year that would fit. Right then we'll shove them both in there, something like that. So, And we could do bonus episodes, too. That's the other thing is if we do start a Patreon, I think we have to have more than four listeners. Hey, do we have more than four listeners? If you listen, let me know because I don't know who's out there. I think uh, we have more than four listeners, but they're just very shy. 
Well, we love you. We're shy too. It might not seem like it since we're putting it's like our the, voices the on the dinner internet. dinner parties that we used to throw where we had like 30 of the shyest friends that we had. It was so loud. All together in the same room. And we were all loud together and then we leave the house silently. Silently. Because we're Everybody going out into gets, the real world. We're not safe They spend anymore. all their spoons and then they go quietly out into the world. Right. Um, so that's what we're going to do going forward starting in June. I don't know what the end of this month is going to be. It'll be a surprise, but I'll, we'll let you know uh, on the Facebook page or not, mm-hmm. maybe on the Twitter. Uh, but this one comes out the second to last Thursday of May. And then we got a space until June. So what will we do? Black I wouldn't Panther mind doing a Black Panther situation. Right. If Black Panther comes out on disc, I won't buy that. Oh, here's a warning to you if you don't know. I was going to buy digitally, and I've been told that the digital version is not great. And in fact, is missing significant pieces of captioning. Uh, that were in the theatrical version when they're speaking in the African language and then Korean, which you get the captioning for so that you know what these main characters are saying Mm -hmm. and it's important. It's not in the digital release on Amazon, at least. So uh, I've been warned off of that. I want to buy that movie very badly, but I have not been able to yet. Uh, Avoid the digital. Avoid it. All right. That's it for me. Are you good? I'm Are good. good? I'm All nice. right. Then thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are available for uh, comment. Uh, uh, children's parties. Public mm-hmm. events. Yeah, nothing below a two-year-old, though. Yeah. No. I don't want to be at a one-year-old's party. No. So look out for bouncy Just castles. Just a lot of people kind of, you know, complaining about their lack of sleep and changing diapers that kid's not going to remember this party. Why are you putting so much effort and money uh, into it? I've seen it happen. I know. I, know. I don't understand it. I also don't have kids, so maybe I should shut the hell up. Anyways, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at latecomerspod on Twitter. We are on Facebook as a group and a page. Choose or don't. Have don't both. Choose. Yes, have a little both. of each. Take two. They're small. And what else? Is that it? That's it. Your book is available at Ceiling Night. Ceiling Night, Night, a psychomantium, which is available on Amazon. On Amazon. I'm available at amityarmstrong.com, at amityarmstrong on Twitter. 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 I like the way you say that. And I say it like an old person. Twitter. Uh, And I think that is it for us. And remember... Better late than never. You said almost all the words. Uh, <laughs> I say it at the same cadence every time. I, it's hard because I never know when you're going to start. It should be like a three, two, one. No. Yeah. Or one, two, three. Go.